0: Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths' faithful volunteer and dramatist, Leslie Ford. Thanks for joining in our quest.
1: In today's Christ followers Bible study, we're in the book of Acts. And we're going to be in chapter 12, starting with chapter 12. And as we like to do, we'll start with a word
2: of prayer. Chuck, would you open us, please?
1: Lord, we're mindful
2: of the burden you placed upon the early disciples and apostles, is, as we learn about in the book of Acts, and how they shouldered this burden um, after being trained by Jesus. And we uh, thank you, Lord, that you give us the privilege of of picking up a, a, a burden and bearing it. And uh, we pray only that we would be um, capable and worthy of uh, following in the footsteps of these men that we are going to be learning about tonight in the book of Acts. Thank you, Lord. Amen. 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 Thank Amen. you. Hi, Mark.
3: Well, good evening. It's uh, good to be back with everyone after a lengthy sabbatical, we have been looking at the book of Acts in a little different light than it's usually presented in the Protestant churches of America currently. We're seeing as we go through the book of Acts uh, not God starting over with something new, but systematically fulfilling in detail all of the promises that have been made through the prophets to old covenant Israel. And it's been quite amazing, you know, some of the detail here. In chapter 12, we're going to see a renewal and an extension, really, of the persecution that began uh, with the execution of Stephen, uh, which we looked at earlier in the book of Acts. If we try to imagine the Judean nation in the first century, we can kind of envision it as circles of perfection emanating outward from the high priest as far as the religious establishment of the day was concerned. The high priestly family was the innermost circle. The high priest was the only one allowed into God's throne room uh, once a day and that was only with the blessing of the Roman occupation government who basically sold the office and kept the high priestly garments hostage uh, year to year. But these would have been the purest of the pure and the ultimate center of religious life in 1st century Judea. And then right outside of them, you would have had the other priest families and the Sanhedrin, which had a minority of Pharisees who had quite different religious views than the priests and the Sadducees did and then you would have had the Judeans proper who lived right in the area surrounding Jerusalem and who were able to be at the temple on a very frequent basis and then you had the second class Judeans who lived up in Galilee and, you know, we we saw that all through the Gospel of John's, went through there, that the Galilean Judeans were second class uh, citizens, so to speak, of the nation. They weren't very highly thought of by the inner, more inner circles down in Judea proper. And then outside of that, you had the scattered Judeans who had never, Uh, really resettled in Palestine after the Babylonian captivity or perhaps some of them had and then had moved on. But there were communities of Judeans throughout the Roman world in all the major cities. And actually they were concentrated in the larger cities where there was a lot of commerce. And the book of Acts is going to be showing this later uh, as we leave palestine as we're about ready to do after chapter 12 but what we have seen is that all of these judeans including the greek speaking judeans who were really you know considered third or fourth rate by the pure judean leadership they had all gathered in jerusalem for the feast of pentecost or first fruits when Peter and the apostles began preaching them way back in Acts 2. And then, you know, they stayed there and had to be supported. A lot of the locals sold their property to feed this this large uh, number of people who stayed much longer than they had intended in the area. That's by way of review. But to bring that up to date, all of those people stayed until Stephen, who was a Greek-speaking Judean, he was disputing in one of the Greek-speaking synagogues in Jerusalem when he got into trouble with some of these uh, freedmen, Judeans who had been slaves out in the wider Roman world at some point and then had attained their freedom. Uh, th- they were the ones who uh, led the charge against Stephen executed him, And from that point, the Greek-speaking Judeans were basically expelled from Jerusalem by persecution. But the Judean, proper Judeans, and the Galilean Judeans were able to stay and kind of stay under the radar and not be bothered. And all that is now about to change. If we uh, go here to our reading Acts 12, and I flipped away from it here.
4: Okay, let's read the first four verses
3: as we get started here.
4: It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with his sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, He put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. All right, thank you.
3: What had changed is that the Judeans had started uh, preaching to Gentiles, to God-fearing Greeks like Cornelius. Uh, which we looked at in the last two chapters of Acts, chapters 10 and 11. And uh, this was way more than these self-righteous Judeans could stand. And so it enraged them against now another layer of the Christian community, which was really the Galileans here. James, the brother of John, was from Galilee. They were all fishermen up there near the Sea of Galilee. And Peter, of course, was from up there as well. So we have to kind of um, deduce this, that the blame for going to the Gentiles was placed on the Galilean Christians. And so they are now the subject of the wrath of the powers that be. Herod Agrippa is trying to rule over the realm that Herod the Great His forebearer had had had, uh, authority over, and he was trying to keep himself in favor of the inner circles of the Judean leadership, the Sanhedrin and the priestly families, and so on. And these are the Jews mentioned in verse 3. Is actually, by context, referring to these uh, inner circles of the Judean religious hierarchy. Uh, in Jerusalem, so he arrests and beheads James, and then he went on to arrest Peter right about the time of the Passover. and they they didn't do executions uh, during the Passover. you know jesus was was arrested just before the Passover, and they had to rush through his execution to get uh, the bodies down off the crosses before the Passover began. But here they're not even pushing it that hard. They're just gonna keep him in jail until the whole weekly festival is over. I mean he couldn't go anywhere. He was he had uh, four squads of Roman soldiers. Well, they may or may not have been Roman. Quaternion was a Roman term, but uh These would have probably been, I guess, Judean soldiers. But four squads of four who were guarding him 24 hours a day. Any thoughts before we go on? All right, well, let's proceed and read verses 5 through 11, please.
4: So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him.
3: All right, Leslie. Thank you.
4: We are seeing more
3: and more here, as the Book of Acts progress, how the uh, Judean nation was becoming, or had become, the enemy of God, and this is, uh, you know, very, very significant. And there are a few prophecies that uh, state this back in the Hebrew Scriptures that this, you know, would be the case. And it's uh, very parallel to what occurred in 586 B.C. in the years leading up to that when all of Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. The Judean people had become idolaters and were worshiping pagan gods right in the temple courtyard in Jerusalem and so on. And so there's many prophecies that speak of that and of their transformation from being the covenant people of God to becoming the the enemies of God. And we're seeing here in Acts 12 uh, some of the evidence that this is happening again here. The Judean nation is, is uh, going against the body of Christ and, and his temple, which of course has now been transferred as of the day of Pentecost. His uh, spirit has come down to dwell in the community of believers and they are the new temple of God. And the old people of God are waging war against the new people of God. Peter is imprisoned here and his family of believers are in constant prayer on his behalf. The feast has apparently ended because he's about to be brought out for public execution the next day. And this squad of four, two of them are chained to him, and the other two are standing outside. They probably took turns, you know, during their three hours on duty, and then another squad would relieve them, and so on. But the, the two of them are right outside the door, two of them are chained to him. Now, this word angel is just the Greek word that means messenger. The early English translators all came from a Catholic background, and so... They chose not to translate words that went against their Catholic traditions in many cases, and angel is one of those words. It should have, if it was truly translated, it would have just said a, suddenly a messenger of the Lord stood over Peter and shone a light in a cell. the cell. You have to determine from the context whether this is a human messenger or a messenger from the spirit realm you know, like we normally think of angels with uh, wings and halos and things like that. Uh, Those beings are not really in the Bible, but they're in a lot of uh, Catholic art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and so on. And scholars are divided on the nature of this particular messenger. Some believe this is a human messenger. Some believe it's a spiritual being who God has sent. But the, the word... Angelos doesn't tell us uh, which it is. You have to decide for yourself here from the story. But this messenger could speak in uh, Aramaic. Apparently, (laughs) told he woke Peter up, slapped him up, and got him moving. Here, chains fell off his hands, and uh, Peter's still in kind of a daze. He thinks he's dreaming, but he has to get dressed and follow this messenger out. He still thought he was seeing a vision here as he uh, as he left. They got past the first four and then past uh, the two more layers of guards in this um, fortress area before they got to this uh, iron gate that led into the city. And it just swung open by itself. So we definitely see miraculous intervention from the spirit realm here even if the messenger was a human being. As soon as they get out in the street, this messenger leaves. Peter's all by himself, and he finally kind of wakes up and uh, realizes that he has been rescued, delivered from the hand of Herod. There's there's a sense here in which this is parallel to Jesus uh, years before, because it's the Passover Peter like Jesus had been unlawfully arrested even though he hadn't done anything wrong and he was uh set to be executed he has now kind of more or less come back from the dead you see he was as good as dead and now he is uh come back from the dead it it's not quite parallel to Jesus of course because Jesus actually physically died Peter just almost died and then was was given back alive. They lost James, you know, just shortly before, but God chose to give Peter back to them, just like Jesus came back to them uh, years before. And this all after the Passover. There, there's intentional parallelism throughout the book of Acts with the Gospels. The events of Jesus in his own body are now being repeated by the body of believers, which has become the new dwelling place of God's Spirit on the earth. All right, any uh, thoughts or comments here on this uh, paragraph?
4: You said the
3: new church? The new church is not a good word, really. That's, that's, again, something else we got in our English Bibles.
4: Ecclesia?
3: Yeah, Ecclesia, the assembly, the assembly of God's people and the spiritual temple which Peter and Paul talk a lot about in their letters later on.
2: Mark, in the third verse, Leslie read from her Bible, and it, and it said, uh, because he saw it, ple- um, they killed James, the brother of John of the sword, and because he saw it pleased the Jews, he uh, proceeded further to take Peter also. So here the word Jew, uh, of course, is so commonly used, and it's used, of course, to... Refer to the enemies of God, but it's also often referred to you to, uh, used to refer to the disciples as well. And, uh, it's kind of like the word angel. It was sort of, except the word angel, I guess, was never translated, uh, out of the original Greek. But the, the word Jew, of course, was translated from something else. I guess Judeans. And it's this constant, uh, reminding us that this is all the Jewish realm and the continuation of the Jewish uh, culture that we're that we're seeing, supposed to be seeing.
3: Yeah, that is the word Eudios, which in the Greek means of Judea or Judean.
2: And it was transla- translated then into Jews, and that was done when?
3: Well, the, the word "Jew" was um, kind of a slur word developed in England in the Middle Ages to describe the people that followed the Law of Moses. That There was a tiny remnant which grew later in the 1500s when the Spanish Inquisition came. There was a significant community of Palestinian Judeans who had escaped to Spain and they flourished there for hundreds and hundreds of years until Ferdinand and Isabella cast all the Moors out. And then they began the what's known as the Spanish Inquisition. Most of the Jews there converted to Catholicism under the threat of death. But th- these were known as the Sephardic Jews. A number of them escaped to England. And uh, England had a fairly large community from that point forward. And it may have been at that time that this... Uh, that this word jew entered into the english language as kind of a derogatory term for these people
2: and then was plugged in later by the um translators i guess
3: well right because the that's bible. the only
2: word it,
3: it makes sense it's the only word they would have used and of course they were they were thinking of these people as a as an extension of the nation of judea from the first century in the bible so but it definitely causes confusion today.
2: Thank you, Mark.
3: All right. Now then, let's look at the next section, uh, verses 12 through 17.
4: When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhonda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. All right, thank you. So Peter,
3: uh, he gets a grip mentally and realizes he's got to move quickly to take advantage of this um, divine intervention. So apparently there was a large house church in the home of uh, Mary, the mother of John Mark. And she was apparently fairly well off because this house had an outer courtyard, which would have been a sign of uh, wealth and affluence there within the uh, gated city of Jerusalem. So they're in there praying for Peter's release and he's knocking at the door. And this girl Rhoda comes and Hears a knocking, and she she recognized Peter's voice, and uh, forgot to open the gate for him, and ran back to tell him that he was outside at the gate. And they told her she was crazy. He's here. He's here. <laughs> yeah. He's there. He's there. <laughs> so they said when they say his angel, they're, they are referring to you know his. Uh, the spirit form or something, apparently his ghost, in other words. But Peter's out there still trying to get him to open the door. And they finally go back and open up the gate and let him in there to the courtyard. He doesn't linger long. He just explains to them what had happened so that he could get out of a prison with help. And then apparently there was another house church where... James, and this James is obviously James, the brother of, of Jesus, who became the prominent leader of the Jerusalem church. And so he wants him to pass the word to them. And then he he leaves. He doesn't hang around. I mean, the, the police would probably know where to go to uh, look for him. But no one knows where he went. No one's been able to figure it out. It was a very good secret, and it worked very well because Peter stayed out of the clutches of these people for years and years to come. So that's kind of the way it uh, laid out there. Any, uh, any thoughts before we go on to see what happened when they realized Peter was gone? Um,
1: well, thank you. Thank you, Mark, for that. Um,
3: Every time I, I hear
1: this, these passages and I look at uh, what the, the Judaizers were, were doing, it reminds me of um, Michael Hoffman's huge volume on um, Judaism uh, discovered. And I, I tell you, I've been intimidated by that book. And what I, what I see happening is that today's culture, we don't really understand Talmudism, and that is what uh, Jesus and the early Christians were fighting against.
3: Yeah, the, uh, I mean, Judaism became very corrupt in Babylon during the Babylonian captivity and uh, it's a whole study in and of itself but certainly the Gospel of John I guess is a good place to go Jesus points out that the religion of these inner circles of the Judean religious hierarchy it was not the law of Moses, it was not the religion of Moses, it was something vastly different and you know, your law, he, he, he says, your law. And he said, your temple is left you. Desolate. He distanced himself from their religion because it, it was, uh, it was corrupt. It was something, uh, far different from what it had been originally. Any, anything else here? Good point. Alright, well, let's read, uh, 18 and 19, please.
4: In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there.
3: All right. So... Of course, there was, uh, the same kind of consternation amongst the guards that occurred when Jesus' body disappeared from the garden tomb or when Peter and some of the others that were arrested on the Temple Mount, uh, were back out teaching on the Temple Mount. Uh, you know, it, it couldn't be explained by anything rational. They could not explain it. The penalty for a guard letting a prisoner go was that the guard had to accept the punishment that would have been uh, due to the prisoner. And since they were about ready to kill Peter, death would have been the penalty for these guards uh, letting him escape. So they probably felt pretty unjustly uh, (laughs) punished there right before they lost their heads, but uh, uh, they were party to this, you know, criminal action, and caught in the middle and uh, paid a high price for it. Uh, They looked all over but couldn't find him. He had found some good hiding place that we still don't know where it was. And it wasn't really a good thing. He was trying to curry the favor of the elite of the nation there, but instead he must have looked kind of like a laughingstock. So he uh, left Judea and went down to Caesarea which is some ways north of Jerusalem down on the coast. It was an artificial harbor completely created by Herod the Great, amazing engineering feat, uh, an entire Roman city built where there was nothing before, and one of the most massive artificial breakwaters uh, in the ancient world. It was not a Judean city, even though it was in the province of Judea. It was pretty much a Greek uh, Roman city. And so... Herod Agrippa is more or less running away from this embarrassing situation in Jerusalem and uh, going down there. He had some administrative affairs to deal with down there anyway, which our next paragraph will tell us about. 20 through 23, if there are no uh, comments,
4: yeah. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a mere mortal. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died.
3: All right, thank you. Now we have a parallel account to this in the works of Josephus, and he adds uh, quite a bit of detail, but his account is perfectly harmonious with Luke's here in Acts chapter 12. Tyre and Sidon are up in what we call Lebanon today. They were originally Phoenician cities. They were the ones who colonized all over the Mediterranean and built Carthage in North Africa years before this. And they had a lot of interaction with David and Solomon when they ruled over Israel. And you can learn of the mutual dependency between Israel and Tyre and Sidon, uh, there, when you read in the book of Kings and Chronicles and so on, uh, in the days of uh, David and Solomon, a lot of trade going on back then, and it was still going on. They were on the sea coast. They didn't really have much farmland, so they would have had seafood and things that they would have traded with the Israelite farmers On the interior, which of course by this time had been replaced by Galilean Judeans who occupied the former territories of northern Israel as they had stood back in the days of Solomon and David. But uh, they wanted to take care of this dispute with the ruler of Judea and get that worked out. And so they sent this deputation uh, down south there to Caesarea to uh, meet with him using an inn through the king's chamberlain. It probably paid him to grant them an audience with uh, Herod Agrippa. And we learned from Josephus' account that this appointed uh, day described in verse 21 was early in the morning, which was the tradition for for public Officials to take care of their official business early in the morning. So, this was very early in the morning, and his robe that day was made of uh, silver, silver thread throughout, woven together. And he went in right as the sun was coming up, and so the first rays of sunlight hit on his silver uh, robe and made, you know, a, a very Impressive uh, reflection off of it. And so these uh, Tyrians and Sidonians use this as a way to flatter him and, uh, you know, calling out uh, that he was a god, not a human being. And Herod, of course, did not rebuke them for this, but accepted the adulation and being exalted to a deity. And he is uh, struck down by the angel of the Lord, and that's uh, many scholars believe when it's the angel of the Lord, that's referring to Jesus Christ. He struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he died consumed by worms. We learned from Josephus that it took four days of complete agony for him to die. <laughs> He was fifty four years old and had been king for seven years so this uh it
4: sort of reminds me of Nero
3: well yeah they're uh <laughs> Nero was even fouler than Herod Agrippa, but they were both persecuting god's people, and they both both met horrible ends and this uh This account kind of prefigures Herod here as an agent of the Judean people had been persecuting the body of Christ and he is uh, judged for it. So this kind of serves as a harbinger of what the whole nation is bringing on themselves within one generation as we've already seen reference to in all the Gospels and earlier in the book of Acts. All the believers knew that this was coming. The book of Acts is kind of building up to that and Really, that context will will explain how the book of Acts ends, which is rather odd, really. But it makes perfect sense if we understand that the book of Acts is demonstrating how God is fulfilling all of his promises to old covenant Israel. And that Israel will be saved by eschatological transformation. She's going to be saved from the harlot bride into the pure... Bride of Christ, through judgment and eschatological transformation, she's going to be resurrected as a nation to fulfill all of the prophecies in the Hebrew prophets. This is kind of a foretaste of all that. And so in contrast to this, we have just one short verse, if we could read that, verse 24.
4: But the word of God continued to increase and spread. And so this is the
3: third progress report so far in the book of Acts that punctuates the narrative account that we find here in the book of Acts. The prosperity of the cause of Christ is contrasted with the miserable end of Herod Agrippa. And of course that's the whole contrast that the book of Revelation speaks of as well. And it's really the theme of all of the New Testament letters between Acts and Revelation as well, if we would only see it. This is going to fulfill the prophecy of Daniel, uh, Daniel 9, the prophecy of weeks that we looked at uh, a few years back, where, well, I'm actually not thinking of that prophecy as much as you go back to the early part of Daniel and the uh, the great vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of the great statue and then it being destroyed by a small pebble which came and ground it to dust and then grew to become a huge monolith that consumed all the kingdoms of the world. And it, it's very clear that that was going to take place in the days of the Roman kings. And further visions of Daniel teach the same thing, very specific as to the timeline. But this is exactly what we see happening. The kingdom of God is growing from that embryonic nucleus of 200 disciples to tens of thousands to thirties of thousands to hundreds of thousands. And the unrepentant Judeans are plodding away towards certain destruction. The old covenant people, the old kingdom, the old temple are plotting to destruction. The new covenant people, the new temple are increasing and multiplying and being blessed by God as the old is being cursed by God.
2: All right, your thoughts?
4: If you can't join them, kill them. Hmm?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Mark, this is Craig. Uh, Question.
1: Do you know what the beef was that Herod had with the um, the Sidonians and the uh, the ones from Tyre? Is Is there anything from Josephus or anything that would show what the complaint was?
3: Uh, not a whole lot of uh, of detail there. I don't have that open in front of me, but I don't think Josephus gave a whole lot of detail. Although he, you know, confirmed that they were trying to resolve some type of
1: conflict.
3: Conflict, yeah. Between the two of them. I, I yeah. find it
1: interesting that they were uh, trying to resolve the conflict because they were on the dole from Herod. Uh, it, it, it sounds. Uh, it reminds me of a of uh, a uh, city in Rhode Island that's one-third of the population is on food stamps and the whole economy is based on you know, what the government can do. Uh, and that's, It kind of sounds like very similar here with they were on the dole from Herod and they wanted to resolve it so they could keep the uh, the food coming in.
3: Yeah, yeah, not, not uh, improbable at all. I, I was in California <laughs> last week and there was a real run-down small town in the Central Valley of California and w- one of the newest shiniest businesses in town is some kind of food market that only takes food stamps and vouchers and things like that. And it was doing a land office business.
1: Times of the times.
3: Yes, yeah.
2: Mark, uh, we're seeing the beauty of the growth of the early church just in its infancy. Do you Are you aware of any prophecies in the Old Testament that, that talk about the corruption of the... Of the, of the new church that, that that we now see among us that we see around us uh, that uh, results in for instance Christian Zionism and and a dozen other corruptions of what Jesus and the apostles were teaching here in the early church
4: is there any way of
2: uh, dealing with this scripturally or uh, or are we just are we, is it just up to us to recognize the growth pains and problems and Try to
3: cope with them. Well, it would be extremely easy at this point in history to fall into the common trap that has plagued the uh, Protestant churches for 500 years, which is to apply these prophecies uh, to our own time. And this has produced uh, an endless series of almost comedic errors and false predictions and so on. But but those prophecies, I don't think any of them were written to describe the situation in the United States or the world of 2013. I believe they were all written to point towards Jesus Christ and his uh, redemptive work and the work of the apostles, which took place in the first century. However, the principles that are in all of these prophecies are absolutely timeless, and the principles even in the... Uh, New Testament books, which again I think were written in the context of leading up to the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the great judgment on the Roman world, which took place in the days uh, of Nero and shortly thereafter. The the principles are timeless. So if we, if we keep that in mind as a caveat, we are free to apply the principles of all those prophecies to what's going on today. And we see... Amazing parallels. If we go to the book of Ezekiel, the condemnation of the false shepherds of Israel, you can effortlessly apply these to the religious leaders in our country today. I mean, it's it's almost too easy. It's so easy that you know we'd be tempted to say, "Oh, Ezekiel was writing about us today." I don't think he was, but but he certainly <laughs> these things. Te- Tend to repeat over and over again. So we call the, the modern-day Pharisee watch because we have religious leaders today who have taken God's people far astray just as the first century Judean leadership had, uh, which we've already talked about here tonight. So I, I hope that answers your question. I mean, there, Ezekiel's a good one, but you, you could just read all of them just about and you can find... Uh, disturbing parallels, which would indicate that uh, our nation is rapidly bringing judgment on itself for making the same errors that God's people have made time and time again through history.
2: Thank you, Mark. You made the great point that uh, is is the problem of the dispensational movement today, and that is exactly, as you said, attempting to apply all of the prophecies of the Old and New Testament to our times rather than apply them the way uh, uh, God did uh, to, the, to the people of his book at that time.
3: Well, And we remember what we read in Acts 3 where Peter said, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel onward spoke of these days, his days, you know, the first century. So, uh, you know, yes, God says that those prophecies applied to the first century.
4: And
2: nature has a way of repeating
3: itself. Yes, over and over. We, Those who fail to learn
4: human nature
3: from the mistakes of the past uh, will repeat them. All right, so th- this is kind and of... we're still sinners. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. There's one last verse in chapter 12, but it really goes along with 13, so we can uh, pick up next time here at uh, chapter 12, verse 25.
0: All right. Wow,
1: that was great. Thanks for everybody's input, Craig and and Chuck and Leslie. That was a very excellent study tonight, Mark, and look forward to continuing on. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it, as long as you copy all of it. Then, you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.